Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said this, As soon as you trust yourself, you will know how to live. Normally I use a quote because I agree with it. I use it to support or reinforce a point I'm trying to make. Not this time. In fact, I completely disagree with that quote. The notion that trusting yourself is the key to knowing how to live is dead wrong. If you only ever trust yourself, you won't know how to live or even what life is. The point I want to make is exactly the opposite of that tonight. I'm here to tell you tonight to trust Jesus with everything, not yourself. We're back in Mark chapter 5 tonight, looking at the scriptures that were read and you're hearing a little earlier, verses 21 to 43. The last couple of Sundays, we've been looking at a series of four miracles performed by the Lord Jesus. All of them intended to convey one supreme reality. Jesus is Lord. We learned last week He is Lord over difficulties as we saw Him calm the storm. We learned this morning He is Lord over demons as He cast an army of demons out of a man in the Gadarenes. Tonight we're going to Lord He we're going to learn He is Lord over disease and death. If you take these four miracles together, they send one very clear message. Jesus is Lord over everything. Difficulty, demons, disease, death, all of it. Because He is Lord of everything, we trust Him with everything. We trust Jesus with all of the issues of life. That's the point we're trying to make tonight. Now the story we're going to look at tonight is two miracles. We're going to look at both of them together for one very simple reason. Because the second miracle happens while the other one is in process. In other words, the first story begins and the second story happens before the first story is finished. So because these events are given to us as one unit, we're going to look at both of these tonight and we're going to simply see the need to trust Jesus with everything. The question I want to answer tonight is this. What can I do to help me trust Jesus with everything? I think you know that you should trust Christ with everything. I don't think I have to convince you that you ought to do that. But you may be saying, you know what, I, I know that's a good thing, I know we should do that, but can you give me some help with this? How do we go about this? What's going to help me trust Jesus with everything? To answer that question, I want to give you four keys to trusting Christ with everything. And they all come directly from the Scripture. Here's the first one. 
The first key to trusting Jesus with everything. Know your desperation. Know your desperation. In verses 21 through 26, we are introduced to two people. Both of these people we are introduced to are in desperate situations. First we meet a man named Jairus. He is a synagogue official, it tells us in verse 22. Jairus was a fairly wealthy member of the community. He had a role in the synagogue that was more administrative and financial aspects. He wasn't a spiritual leader, right? He was more in charge of the functioning of the temple, the finances and the administration and the ritual aspects and things like that. And you'll see that he comes up to Jesus in verse 22 and falls at Jesus' feet. Now the fact that he would do that tells us two very important things. One, he knows of Jesus' reputation for the miraculous. Okay? He falls at Jesus' feet because he knows who Jesus is. Two, this tells us he's desperate. Now I need you to think about something. He is a leader of the synagogue. It is his peers who want to find a way to kill Jesus. The religious leaders are the ones who are after Jesus. Those are people he would have been peers with. You might say they would have been his buddies people, people probably he knew well and was close to. They're after Jesus, but this man comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. What's he doing? For Jairus, he's casting off all dignity. He's casting off all pride. He doesn't care what his religious Jewish friends think. He comes to Jesus because he's desperate. Verse 23. He implored him earnestly, saying, that means he begged him sincerely, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hand on her so she will get well and leave. He has a daughter who is at death's door. So he forgets about what his fellow Jews might think. He forgets about any pride or any dignity and he publicly falls down at the feet of Jesus and begs for the life of his daughter. Why would he do that? Because he's desperate. Second, we meet an unnamed woman in verses 25 through 27. We aren't given the details of her condition. We're just told that she had a hemorrhage for 12 years, a bleeding problem, some type of menstrual disorder. Now, she suffered. Think about this. She suffered not only the physical distress of her condition, but something we don't think about. Her condition would have rendered her ceremonially unclean, religiously unclean. What does that mean? It means this woman socially and religiously would have to be isolated as long as she remained unclean, as long as this bleeding disorder persisted. That means she couldn't be out in social circles and she couldn't be in the temple. 
isolated. And that's in addition to the physical suffering. We find out as we look in verse 26, she had been to every doctor in town. She had spent every nickel she had trying to get well and she was no better. In fact, the text says she had grown worse. And her misery had lasted for 12 long years. She's at the point of desperation. And her actions show us she's desperate. Verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get do you realize that simply by being in that crowd, she is violating the law because she's unclean. Everybody that she touches would become unclean, including Jesus. This woman is taking a huge risk because if she's found out, her shame and her humiliation would be publicized and multiplied. In other words, her suffering would get even worse. Her shame would get even worse if somebody found out what she was doing. But she is willing to risk it. Why? Because she's desperate. Two people. One wealthy, respected man. One poor, insignificant woman. The only thing they have in common is their desperation. And it drives them to Jesus. You ever try to help a child do something? Maybe tie their shoes or carry something heavy. But she doesn't want your help. He wants to do it himself. Right? Kids can be that way when they're a certain age. Now you know that he can't do it by himself. But she hasn't accepted that fact yet. So you watch as they struggle and try and fail. Struggle and try and fail. Until they finally get to the place that they realize they simply can't do it without your help. And it's only when they reach the point of desperation that they finally look to you and allow you to help. Can I tell you tonight it's the same for you and I. When you realize that you just can't handle the issues of life, when you get to the point that you realize your desperation, it's then that you'll trust Jesus. As long as you think you can handle it all, as long as you think, I got it, you won't trust Him. You'll try and fail and try and fail. Can I tell you something tonight, church? Trusting Jesus begins when you accept the reality of John chapter 15, verse 5. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. That's where trust begins. When you accept the fact that you are always Desperate. I'm not telling you, well, when you're desperate, turn to Jesus. 
I'm telling you, you're always desperate. Just realize that fact. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. Listen, what drives a parent to fall on their knees day after day and beg the Lord to save their children? What drives a grandparent to continually ask God to rescue their grandchildren from the world, the flesh, and the devil? It's desperation that drives them. They trust Christ with the salvation of their children and grandchildren because they know Christ is their only hope. As long as you believe you can handle matters on your own, you'll never trust Christ. But when you realize that your spiritual and physical welfare are in His hands, then you'll trust Him. When you're convinced that honoring God in your marriage and in your finances is going to require divine intervention, then you'll trust Him. When you know that your work for the Lord will accomplish nothing without His power and without His blessing, then you'll trust Him. When you get to the place that you know your desperation, you'll do what these two people in the story did. You'll cast off pride and dignity and you'll cast yourself at the feet of Jesus. The first key to trusting Christ with everything is knowing your desperation. The second key to trusting Christ with everything is understand true faith. To trust Christ is to exercise true faith. Well, if you're going to do that, you have to understand what true faith is. So this woman, with an issue of blood, comes to Jesus for help. While Jesus is on the way to Jairus' home. Keep this in mind. Jairus' daughter is dying. He leaves with Jairus to go home so Jesus can heal his daughter before she dies. And this woman interrupts the whole story. The girl is at the point of death. And now there's a delay. If ever you didn't need a delay, it's now. But now there's a delay. But what I want to say to you is, it's a strategic delay. Why? Because this delay is going to teach Jairus a very important lesson about faith that he's going to need. We saw in verse 27, the woman presses her way through the crowd to touch the cloak of Jesus. You remember I told you that she was taking a big risk by going into the crowd? Doing something she's not, according to law, allowed to do? It's the first thing I want to say to you about true faith. True faith is self-risking. True faith is self-risking. But why did she touch his clothes? Verse 28, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. See, the ancients believed that a person's power extended to their clothes and even their shadow. You remember in the book of Acts, it talks about some people were healed when the shadow of Peter came across them. People in ancient days believed that a, the power a person had extended to their clothes and even their shadow. You could call it superstitious, but this woman believed that touching Jesus' clothes was a way to tap into his power. 
Here's the bottom line. She believed Jesus had the power to heal her. She believed he had the power of God within himself to heal her. Here's the second thing I want to say to you about true faith. Not only is true faith self-risking, specifically, true faith is self-risking confidence in Jesus. True faith is self-risking confidence in Jesus. Notice verse 29. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. The effect of this woman touching Jesus' robe was instantaneous. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she knew instantly that she had been made well. What the medical profession had not been able to do in 12 years, Jesus did immediately without saying a word or lifting a finger. And in verse 30, Jesus said he was aware that power had gone forth from him and he turned around in the crowd, who touched my garments? His disciples think the question is ridiculous. You see all the people pressing around you and you're trying to figure out one person that's touched you? I, I need you to catch this. For Jesus, it's not a matter of knowing who the woman is. He knows who the woman is. He wants an encounter with her. He's not satisfied just that she's healed. He wants an encounter with her. Now the question is why? Well, here's why. Jesus wants to make sure that this woman knows that it is her self-risking confidence in Him that has brought her healing. Verse 33, the woman fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Maybe she feared the consequences of defiling a holy man by touching him in her unclean state. Maybe she was afraid because she had delayed him while he was on the way to an important mission. Maybe she was just overcome with awe and emotion. In any case, she falls at the feet of Jesus and tells him her whole story. And in verse 34, Jesus says, Daughter, a term of endearment, your faith has made you well. Some would say, this woman was healed by the power of faith. I want you to look at verse 30 again. Watch this. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in Himself that power proceeding from Him had gone forth. Where did the power come from? From Him. It came from Jesus. The woman was healed by the power of Christ, not the power of faith. There's no power in faith of itself. The power is in the object of faith. Jesus makes it clear to this woman, it's not her superstitious belief 
that caused her healing. Listen, it wasn't faith in general that healed this woman. It's faith in Christ that healed this woman. She was healed because she exercised self-risking confidence in the person and power of Jesus. She had absolute, absolute confidence in who Jesus was and in what He could do. Listen, if you're going to trust Jesus with all the issues of life, then you've got to understand what faith is. Faith is self-risking confidence in the person and power of Jesus. To trust Jesus is to exercise that kind of faith. Maybe there's no better illustration of this kind of faith, this kind of self-risking confidence in God than Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon erected a golden statue of himself, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, gold. And he gave an order. When you hear the sound of the music, bow down and worship the image I have set up. If not, you will be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. The music played. The people bowed. All except three. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the king heard they refused to bow to his image, he was absolutely furious. He demanded they bow or else. Verse 16 of Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Self-risking confidence in God. Listen, when we talk about trusting Jesus with everything, we're talking about exercising that kind of faith, that kind of self-risking confidence in the person, in the power of Jesus, in the way we handle our money, in our approach to raising children, in our regulating our relationships, in how we use our time, in our views on politics and all the issues of the day. We put our confidence in the person and power of Jesus in everything in life that we face. No matter how big, no matter how small. With all of it, all of the issues of life, we turn to Christ in faith. We look to Him with absolute confidence that His wisdom will guide us. His strength will sustain us. His grace will empower us. How do we face the issues of life? We face them all the same way this woman did. We press our way through the crowd of public opinion. We press our way through the crowd of naysayers. We press our way through the crowd of ridiculers and rejectors. We press our way through the crowds and we lay hands on the Master. 
To trust Jesus is to exercise faith, self-risking confidence in who He is and what He can do. So the second key to trusting Jesus with everything is understanding true faith. The third key is found in verses 35 to 40. And here it is. Face doubt with faith. Face doubt with faith. What we see in these next verses is the necessity of holding on to faith when you're surrounded by doubt. In this story, there are two groups of doubters. The first group appears in verse 39. After the woman is healed, we see this group of people. Excuse me, I'm giving you the wrong verse. Verse 35 is the first group. After this woman is healed, he tells her, Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Now I want you to keep something in mind as you see this. They are respectful of Jesus. They aren't ridiculing Him. But the thought that He might be able to raise this girl from the dead has never even crossed their mind. They're not accusing Jesus. They're not critical of Him. They, they call Him Rabbi. But in their wildest dreams, now that this girl is dead, they don't imagine anybody can do anything. Nobody has that kind of power. Just never even crossed their mind that Jesus might still be able to save her. Jesus hears what they said in verse 36. He looks at Jairus and says, Don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. And the verb tense, don't be afraid, it tells us that Jairus had already started to fear the worst. So, in a sense, Jesus is literally saying, quit being afraid, keep believing. Quit being afraid, keep believing. You remember I told you the delay this woman caused was strategic? Remember I said she interrupted their journey to Jairus' house, but it was going to turn out to be a valuable delay? Here's why it's a valuable delay. Because that woman just taught Jairus a lesson about faith. And not a moment too soon. Because now his daughter is dead. And that lesson he just learned about faith, now he's going to need. He's going to now have to put in practice the lesson he just learned. We've seen one group of doubters. The second group appears in verse 38. When they got to the house of the synagogue official, Jesus saw a commotion, the people loudly weeping and wailing. They're mourning and crying. Here we meet the mourners. It's a strange custom to us, but at these Jewish funerals, mourners were required. Professional mourners would actually be hired. 
I kid you not. One rabbi gave these instructions. Even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. They would pay people to mourn at the funeral. That was considered just what you did. Mourning at a funeral was part of the process. And they had people who made their living being hired to mourn. And what are they doing? They're doing what mourners are supposed to do. They're weeping and wailing. Now look at verse 39. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Now, is Jesus implying the girl's not actually dead? No. He knows she's dead. He's implying she's not going to stay dead. But what do they do? Verse 40. They began laughing at him. Why are they laughing at him? Because they know she's dead. They may not be medical doctors, but they know dead when they see it. She was dead and they know it. And never in a million years would they imagine he could bring her back to life. So they just laugh at him. Here's our second group of doubters. Jairus is surrounded by people who have no faith whatsoever that Jesus can raise the dead. What does Jesus say to Jairus? Don't listen to the voices of doubt. Keep believing. Quit doubting. Keep believing. In John chapter 10, Jesus describes Himself as the Good Shepherd. Listen to what He says in verses 3 through 5. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice. He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. When He puts forth all His own, He goes ahead of them and the sheep follow Him because they know His voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This is something you need to understand about sheep and sheep herders, especially in the day of Jesus. The sheep would only obey one voice. The voice of their shepherd. You couldn't just walk up to any herd of sheep and call them and them follow you. No, 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 no. They only listen to one voice, the voice they knew, the voice of their shepherd. When I tell you that we have to face doubt with faith, what am I telling you? I'm telling you we have to listen to one voice. We have to refuse to listen to the voices of doubt and tune our ears only to the voice of Jesus. Listen. We are drowning in a sea of unbelief. Voices of doubt come at us from without and within, from everywhere. They come from the TV and the internet. They come from the news. They come from co-workers. The voices of doubt will come from friends, neighbors, even from within your own family. When you decide that you're going to trust Jesus with everything, you're going to hear those voices. When you get serious about trusting Jesus with every issue in life, 
people are going to say, you can't do it that way. That doesn't make sense. You're going to hear the voices of doubt and you may even hear the voice of Satan himself whispering in your ear. That's when we need to hear the voice of Jesus ringing in our ears, only believe. Only believe. How do you deal with doubt? By keeping your faith strong. The voices of doubt are going to try to get you to question whether you should trust Jesus with your finances. The voices of doubt are going to try to get you to question whether you should trust Jesus with your marriage. The voices of doubt are going to try to get you to question whether you should trust Jesus with your children and your grandchildren, with your future, with your pension, with your retirement, with your everything. The voices of doubt are going to come at you from every direction and going to try to get you to question if Jesus is really trustworthy. That's when you have to cry out to the Lord, Lord Jesus, Help me. I don't want to listen to the voices of doubt. I, I want to trust you. Help me to keep believing. Look to the Lord. Ask Him to help you shut out the voices of doubt and to give you ears that hear only the voice of Jesus. In addition to prayer, you keep your faith strong by faithfully sitting under the preaching of God's Word, staying connected to other believers, feed your faith so your doubt will starve to death. Listen, if you're going to trust Jesus with everything, you're going to have to face your doubts with faith. You can't avoid doubts, but you can face them with faith. And that's the third key to trusting Jesus with everything. Now let me show you the fourth key. Remember His power. The fourth key to trusting Jesus with everything is to remember His power. The record of Jesus raising this little girl from the dead serves the primary purpose of opening our eyes to see the extent of our Lord's power and authority. Verse 40. They laugh at Jesus, so He makes them all leave the room, except for the child's mother and father, and Peter, James, and John, everybody else He puts out. And He would have either been standing over or kneeling over this little girl. He takes her by the hand and utters a word of command. This is literally a command. Little girl, I say to you, Arise. Notice verse 42. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. Immediately, instantly, without hesitation, she is alive again. Listen, and not only is her life restored, her strength is restored. How do we know? Because she gets up walking. Verse 43, Jesus gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus really think He could keep this a secret? No. 
He didn't. But what he did want to do, he wanted to keep the intimate details quiet until he could get away to avoid mass hysteria. Dead one moment, alive the next, with nothing but a word from Jesus. Oh, and that's not the only time Jesus demonstrates power over death. Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead right in the middle of his funeral procession. That's like stopping the hearse on the side of the road. Tell him to get the casket out, opening it, and raising him from the dead. Right in the middle of his own funeral, Jesus raises this woman's only son. John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after he's been dead for four days. And one of these days, Jesus is going to say to our dead bodies the same exact word he said to this little girl, Arise. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. That's this same word. Arise. Get up. Listen. One thing that will help you trust Jesus with your life is remembering that He has power over death. Let me say it to you another way. If He has power over death, why wouldn't you trust Him with your life? If He has that kind of power, why wouldn't you trust Him? Can you imagine what it must have been like for the apostles of Jesus after He went back to heaven? They're preaching the gospel. They're laying the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ in the world. They faced a kind of persecution and hardship that you and I will never know anything of. They would eventually lose their lives for the faith. How in the world did they keep trusting Jesus through all of that? You know one thing I bet they did? I bet they remembered. I bet they remembered the time He calmed the storm with only a word. I bet they remembered the time He fed 5,000 men plus women and children with a little boy's lunch, five biscuits and two sardines. I bet they remembered all the times Jesus healed the blind and the lame and the sick. And I bet they remembered the day he raised that little 12-year-old girl from the dead. I bet they remembered. And I bet you remembering renewed and restored and strengthened their faith as they remembered his power. See, this is what I need you to make sure you understand. Stories like, in, like this one, these stories are in the Bible. So you will see and believe that the very power of God resides 
in the person of Jesus himself. You understand? That's why these stories are here. They're not here just to teach you good morals. They're here to cause you to see the power of Jesus and trust Him. And when you revisit these stories, it reminds us that He is bigger than all of the issues of life. These stories remind us, just these four we've looked at over the last two weeks, they remind us He is bigger than our difficulties. They remind us He is bigger than demons. They remind us He is bigger than diseases. They remind us He is bigger than death. They remind us He is bigger than anything and everything. Can I tell you tonight, remembering He is Lord of everything will help you trust Him with Everything. Jacob Smith is a 15-year-old boy who is legally blind, but he is a downhill skier, free ride skier. He's got extreme tunnel vision. He has absolutely no depth perception. Anything he does see is blurry. Let me put it this way. His vision is rated 20 800, four times the legal level of blindness. So how in the world does this boy ski downhill without killing his fool self? Well, on competition days, his little brother, Preston, helps him hike up to the top of the ski slope. When he gets there, his father, Nathan, helps him get down the ski slope. Here's how it works. Jacob has a two-way radio in his pocket and he's got it turned up on high. His dad is at the other end, at the base of the ski slope. And he calmly gives his son instructions and guides him down. His father Nathan said this, It's on me to make sure I don't let him down. I have to guide him through narrow chutes and keep him from going off cliffs. Jacob is not reckless. He knows his limitations. I think he has the ability to ski anything on that mountain, but he's not going to try to do it by himself. He wants to be with somebody who he trusts. He won't ski with people he doesn't trust. Can I tell you, life is kind of like skiing blind. It's full of twists and turns and dangerous obstacles and steep cliffs and the only way to navigate it safely is to have somebody on the other end you can trust. Somebody on the other end who can see what you can't see. Somebody on the other end who knows what you don't know. Somebody on the other end who has abilities that you don't have. What I'm trying to tell you tonight is that someone is Jesus. You can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus with everything because He is Lord of everything. Let's pray.